Amen. Good morning. How's everyone doing? I know for those of you here at Solid Word who are saying, wait a minute, you said uh, that you weren't going to be here this week. And uh, we had not planned to be the night before we were supposed to fly out. They had some changes made with the church that was going to be doing the memorial service. And so I am here. And um, although our brother um, and our elder, our preacher, Charles Wright, is going to be bringing the God's word this morning, I was still able to be here with you guys. And I surely wanted to be here for this wonderful baptism that we were having this morning. And so we thank God for all of your continued prayer support. Um, I promise y'all won't see me next Sunday because I need to be on a flight. So, um, and um, we will see you, Lord willing, when we get back. But this morning, we are able to do something that we just truly enjoy. We're able to do something this morning that, one, the Lord commanded and still commands. But we also do something that is, um, is to signify what all of it meant. And that, of course, is baptism. And um, we are, as a matter of fact, I'm going to ask, because um, I said it back on the table out there, if um, one of the ushers can bring that certificate up for me, please. They're getting that right now. That um, we are going to rejoice and to be excited with the family as they witness this act, one, of obedience. Um, to the Lord and to the scriptures, but also this act of signifying what it means. Thank you, my sister. I want to make sure that I got his full name right. This morning, we're going to be <clears throat> baptizing our young brother, Jordan Maurice Hunter. And... Um, we are looking forward to celebrating with the family his public um, announcement of his faith. Understand in scripture, actually that baptism, the thought of immersing and bringing back up, it is not an, it, it, immersing something and bringing back up, it is not just exclusive to believers back at that time. It was something that was signifying. And we know that the word and where it comes from was used in a number of ways. But it was the first time that it was used for people and believers and followers of someone was with Christ and his followers. And so what was supposed to happen then, especially back then, is Roman military would baptize their cloths and they would immerse it in a dye and in a color. And what was supposed to happen then is that that color would be saturated into the garment. And when they came up, it would signify that they belonged to this new rank and class of soldier. And so they would baptize that garment. And also baptism was known as one that would just help to, to to you to publicly announce that you are a follower of 
Well, we know that John had been baptizing those who were preparing their hearts for the coming of the Lord. And we know that in Scripture, when Jesus came up, he came to John and John recognized who he was and says, I can't do this. And he says, this must happen like this. Why? Because the leader who would be commanding baptism was not going to be standing apart from baptism. Just like subsequently the leader who would die for the sins of us and sacrifice himself would turn around and tell us to die to ourselves. And so we always had a leader who did first what he commanded. And so this morning we get this opportunity with our brother Jordan, who has already publicly proclaimed his faith in Christ and in obedience to the scriptures is being baptized this morning. Family, why don't you come on up? Those who want to take pictures and those who want to stand there, I'm going to pray for him. I'm going to hand it over to our deacon, Joseph Haskins, and he is going to proceed from there. You guys can come on up on the stage and to come around. You can come all the way on the side over here, too. Give yourself some room so you can see. Yep, it's a lot of people around you, brother. It's a lot of people around you. Let me pray first for the family. Father, thank you so much this morning, Father, that we get to do this in accordance and in obedience to the scriptures and to our Lord. Father, this morning, we stand here ready to publicly proclaim the faith of our young brother Jordan. Thank you, Father, that you have saved him and have taken him unto yourself. Father, we know that this act does not save anyone. We know that this does not make him a Christian. But, Father, because he is a Christian and because he wants to be in obedience to you and to let the world know of his decision, Father, he is publicly saying this morning, I follow Christ. And I pray this morning, Lord, that you would strengthen this decision and this proclamation. I pray that you would help him, Lord, as he grows up to fully understand more and more what this means and that it is more than just a ceremony. Father, let this be a launching pad for his faith. Let this be a launching pad for his life in you. Father, through ups and downs, may he continually keep his eyes on the Savior. And so, Father, right now we continually ask, Lord, that you would put around him people that would encourage him. Father, we know there will be people that will discourage him. But I pray, Lord, that you will always encourage him first, Lord, you yourself, and then put those around him who would be an encouragement. And then I pray that he would be an encouragement to others to walk in the Lord. I pray, God, that you would continue to help him to learn what it means to be a follower of Christ. I pray, Father, for his parents that you would help them to continue to demonstrate Christ in front of him. Father, with consistency, wanting him to see what it means to mature in the faith. I pray for his extended family and his friends, God, that they would both encourage him and learn from him. Father, those that don't know you, I pray that they would see his life in Christ and would want you as well. I pray, God, that his saltiness would make people thirsty for you. 
And I pray, oh God, that you would keep him from the evil one. Lord, you would protect his heart and his life, his mind. And you would let him be an example, oh God, even at this young age of someone that follows you. And so, Father, with this, Father, we commit him to you and pray, oh God, your mighty hand upon him. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. My brother. Amen. Let's celebrate. Praise God. Amen. Praise team to come back on up. The Lord is good, and we, as his children, are here to sing his praises, to give him honor, to give him glory, to worship him. We're here to worship him. So let us join in and make this time to worship the Lord.
worship you, Lord. We give worship to your name. Oh, Lord, worship to your name. Oh, Lord, for your name is great and greatly to be great. in worship. Hopefully your hearts um, don't go anywhere. I'm going to have him stand right here front and center for me, Jordan. I know. I'm going to put you on the spot. Right there, right there, right there, right there. I know it's not ideal, but, you know, we we, we doing the whole socially distant thing and only have him up. I want to pray for him um, in front of all of us. And um, I'm going to have mom and dad come up in just a moment. But I want to present to him. Let me give this to mom and dad. Actually, this one says, Certificate of Baptism. This certifies that Jordan Maurice Hunter received Christian baptism. Amen. 
don't have that as my date. What is today? The 11th. I have a date down there. The 11th of April, 2021. And then it says, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. And again, and we know that it is the believing that saves, and it is the baptizing that proclaims. Amen? And so we thank the Lord that you, in accordance with Scripture, have obeyed the Lord and wanting people to know that you trust in him. And I think that's great. So does your family. Mom, Dad, come on. He wants you to hang on to it because he don't want to lose it. Smart man. <laughs> so um, can we all stand, please? Father, I thank you today, Father, for what has happened. And, Lord, we rejoice because we know it is just another step in commitment in you. Thank you, Lord, that Jordan has parents. Lord, Quentin and Dana, Father, who, who love you and who love their son. And that combination, oh God, creates an environment where they can want to walk in you. And I pray that that environment continues. I pray that you give them, God, the strength um, internally, Lord, that they would do what you have called them to do as parents so that they continually create an environment where Jordan can grow in his faith. Oh, Father, they can't make Jordan serve you no more than we can make anyone else serve you, Lord. But, Father, we create an environment where it is easy to grow. And I pray that that's what happens. And I pray for Jordan that he makes decisions along the way with you at the center of him. Father, we know um, perfection won't be there, Father, but we know that maturity will. And I pray that he grows and that each year he continues to see you, God, uh, more fully and deeply and that he responds in kind. I pray, oh, Father, that you touch his heart and his life and that you let him represent you well and that others would see and believe. And so today we thank you as we commit him to you. In Christ's name, amen. 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 God bless you guys. Thank you. you. May be seated. We're going to have our word this morning as and, and um, as our as our brother comes up, and hopefully you you prepare your hearts uh, <clears throat> and your minds for the word of God, and um, for Lord for the Lord to bless you um, as we hear. And so with that, I'm going to have my brother Wright, uh, Brother Wright, can come on up, and um, let's be blessed this morning, saints. Good morning, good morning, good morning. Uh, as always, I am excited and honored and humbled to stand before you to share with you the word of God. I always like to give thanks to God for the opportunity, but then also to my wife and to my daughters who are extremely patient. Although I do have to say that my wife's patience may have slipped a little bit on yesterday. She was coming into the room, checking on me, and that last time she said, how long does it take to tell the people about Jesus? 
long time. That's right. John said if everything that he did had been written down, it couldn't be contained in one scroll. So, uh, so yeah, so she didn't know I was going to say that, but it's all good. She's smiling underneath that mask, I'm pretty sure. Her eyes look like she's smiling. I'm going to give uh, just a few minutes for these folks uh, who, are, who are coming in so that they can come on in and get situated. <clears throat> but uh, for a uh, topic and a title, I'm going to be talking about Christ crucified. Is that it? Christ crucified. Is that it? And we'll be coming out of Galatians 2 and 20. As far as a lesson aim today, the lesson aim is that believers would understand and would appreciate that the crucifixion of Christ is not a static moment in history meant to be celebrated just one day out of the year. But it is a physical event that we are called to spiritually participate in daily as we walk with Christ. Galatians 2.20 from the ESV reads as follows, and it's a familiar verse, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Now, just by way of an introduction, I want to share just a, a quick story. Uh, an important bedrock of any successful marriage, all those that are married would agree with this, is the willingness of both people in the marriage right, to, uh, to sometimes lay aside their own preferences, their own dreams, their own desires, their own aspirations, their own goals on behalf of the other person. And without a doubt, my wife Karen has done this for me countless times over the 20 years plus years that we've been married. For example, she has placed her own career in pursuits on the back burner so that I could follow a certain career path myself. But I believe that this principle is never in greater display than when the husband and wife are trying to find a movie to watch. <laughs> and, and in general, for those of you that, that, that like math or science and those kinds of things, I believe that, that in, in, for a husband and a wife, your, your movie selections, the things that you like are kind of like Venn diagrams, right? There's a a circle over here that's what I like. There's a circle over here of what Karen likes, and it's glory hallelujah when those intersect. But by and large, most of the things that I like are far in my side, and things that she likes are far in her side. But I'm reminded of a particular movie adventure that we took together back in 2001, 2002. We'd have been about two or three years married, no kids at this point, and we went to go see, well, I went to go see, and she came with me, the very first movie, Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Rings. Uh, and and this, this was an exciting time for me. This movie has a runtime of two hours and 58 minutes, and, and even if you like it, it seems long. But we're there. She's there with me. We're watching it. It's a date night, and, and we're enjoying it. She's got popcorn and candy. I've got popcorn and candy. We're watching the movie, and if you know anything about that movie. It's long, but you also know that there's going to be some other movies. <laughs> so we're watching the movie. They're, 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 they're talking about how they got to get this ring to, to, to the uh, 
to destroy it and take it to where they've got to take it. And at the end of the movie, right, it shows Frodo and Sam walking out towards their destination, and then the screen fades to black. And in the silence of the theater, my wife says, is that it? <laughs> this is a true story. <laughs> yeah. And so this is, this is look, it made you laugh and made me laugh in the moment. And I had to turn and I said, what well, I said, but baby, I said, yes, it's it for the movie, but it's not it for the story. And what she didn't understand, and what I had to explain to her is that, look, there are, there, there, there's more to the story. There's going to be two other movies. They're actually working on the movies simultaneously. So, so just be patient, and the next one will come out. Suffice it to say, she did not make it to the second and the third one with me. But, you know, while this is funny and this is entertaining, I think it illustrates something that happens to Christians when we get around these high holy days. Where we come in, we pack it out, we show up, and then there is something of a feeling once the dismissal happens of, is that it? Is that it? Christ has been crucified. Is that it? Hmm. I, I struggled with this a little bit because this sounds like an Easter message. But even that is a little bit of us in the mindset that I'm going to talk a little bit about today in that we, we relegate certain aspects of Christ to certain times of the year, which then perpetuates this notion of, is that it? We hand out the palms, not saying there's anything wrong with the palms. We come dressed in our Sunday's best, not saying that there's anything wrong with that, only then to go back home and sometimes be left asking, is that it? Now, the context for the text, Galatians 2 and 20, is this, right? The gospel message of Jesus, the notion that people could gain access to God by faith alone in him, not through the law, introduced a new life to Jews in that day and age. And from moving them from a works-based righteousness to a faith-based righteousness. And this was difficult for some Jews to accept. It messed with their minds. And as such, this tension gave rise to another group called the Judaizers. Now, these Judaizers, we've talked about them before, they uh, were uh, individuals, Jewish folks, who embraced Christianity. They believed that Jesus was the Messiah, but they also asserted that the rites of the Old Covenant, the tr uh, traditions and the feasts and the festivals and the practices like circumcision, still needed to be observed to secure your salvation. Now, as Paul spreads the gospel message to the Gentiles, <clears throat> that is, people who aren't Jews, we know that, he often would be followed around by this group called the Judaizers. Could you imagine everywhere you went when you gave out a message, a group coming behind you saying, yeah, but. Yeah, but. <laughs> and while Paul was preaching salvation through grace and faith in Christ alone, the Judaizers would come behind him and teach the necessity of keeping those ritualistic practices. Hmm, I said, could you imagine, but we still do this today. You've accepted Christ, that's awesome, but you can't wear pants. 
oh, you've accepted Christ as your Savior. That's awesome. But fill in the blank from whatever your tradition is. And all of these things, right, all of these things get added on to, again, salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone. And having followed him to Galatia, right, Paul now has to write to the churches that he was just there with to set the record straight and to clear up the confusion that the Judaizers have created. Now, this letter, uh, Paul's letter to the Galatians, was written somewhere between 20 to 30 years after the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ. Paul writes to liberate the Galatian believers to help them walk in the freedom of a righteousness that is born out of the Holy Spirit and not out of traditions, rituals, and works. <clears throat> and just following the form of the letter, after the formal salutation, Paul wastes no time. He gets right to the point in verse 6 when he says that he is surprised by how quickly the Galatians have fallen away from the gospel message that he preached when he was first there. He goes as far as to say this, that even if he comes back to them or an angel appears to them and preaches another gospel message that deviates from salvation by grace through faith alone in Christ, that they should be ignored and that they should be accursed. He gives them then an overview of his conversion, and he stresses that what he is preaching, it didn't come from man, but that it came from Jesus himself, and how after three years, he then went to Jerusalem, connected with Peter, and stayed with him for 15 days. No doubt, during that time, Peter was vetting Paul, trying to make sure that his conversion was real. Paul then goes on to say that after about 14 years of traveling and teaching with Barnabas, he and Barnabas then go back to Jerusalem, and there they received the right hand of fellowship from James, Jesus' half-brother, Peter, and from John. Paul then transitions to a time when he actually confronts Peter and admonishes Peter in Antioch about how, Peter, you used to eat with the Gentiles, but then when the Judaizers came around, uh uh-oh, there's that name again, you began to withdraw from the Gentiles (laughs) because you didn't want to receive their judgment. But Paul addresses that and says, that's not right, that if, if, if Jesus saves completely, then you're saved whether you're with the Gentiles, whether you're with the Jews, whether you're eating this or not eating that. And so for you to be flipping back and forth is making it difficult. It's confusing the message. (laughs) And Paul lays all of this out to basically say two things. One is that the gospel message that he preached to the Galatians initially, that message of salvation by grace through faith in Christ Jesus alone that he received from Christ is consistent with what the apostles were preaching, as evidenced by him spending 15 days with Peter and then him getting the right hand of fellowship from James, Peter, and John. But the second thing that Peter is is trying to uh, point out is that he is not in the business of trying to curry favor with people. He's not tailoring his message so that it appeals to this group or appeals to that group. He says, I'm giving it to you the way I got it. And his allegiance to Christ and to the gospel is supreme above all. 
Now, that walk down is just to get us to Galatians 2 and 20, where we see, right, the introduction of now this verse, I have been crucified with Christ. Verse 20, Paul makes that declaration that he has been crucified with Christ. And first, I want to discuss something that that really comes out in the original Greek and that we don't typically see in in our English translations. When you Look at your word phrase in the English, right? It starts off with the personal pronoun, I. It's followed with the verb construction in the middle, have been uh, crucified. And then it ends with a prepositional phrase with Christ at the end. Now, there's absolutely nothing wrong with that construction. It's a very smooth translation, and it's how we speak, right? We put put, uh, uh, our personal pronoun, the subject at the beginning, the verb, and then the prepositional phrase. But in the Greek, this sentence is made up of only two words, which is interesting. And it reads, Christo sunestau romai, making the wooden English translation, instead of, I have been crucified with Christ, in the Greek it reads, with Christ, I have been crucified. Now, bring up the Greek, right, not to impress, not to cloud the issue or to confuse, but I think it helps to illustrate the weight of this statement that Paul is making as it places the focus on Christ. With Christ, I have been crucified. So what is Paul saying here? First, Paul's statement, with Christ, I have been crucified, establishes for some and reestablishes to others that the crucifixion of Christ happened. It was a real event in space and time, not a story, not a myth, but an observable event in history. Remember, he's writing this 20 to 30 years after the crucifixion. But secondly, not only was Christ's crucifixion a real event in space and time, but it was a pivotal event in space and time. Get that. A real event, but a pivotal event. Now, keep in mind that a crucifixion in general wasn't a unique thing. Crucifixion had been used for centuries. It was likely created by the Assyrians, adopted by the Persians, perfected by the Romans. But Paul wants to remind the Galatians that while crucifixion was common, there was something uncommon about the crucifixion of Christ. Obviously, we know that the resurrection sets Christ's crucifixion apart from all other crucifixions in history. But Paul is pointing to something else, I think. Paul is highlighting another aspect of Christ's crucifixion that causes it to stand over and above all other crucifixions throughout history. (laughs) And that is that somehow, some way, along with Christ, Paul, and by extension, all believers are also crucified. Hmm. Now, we know that Paul is alive and well. He's writing this letter. We know that up to and even immediately after Christ's crucifixion and resurrection, Paul was still about the business of trying to stamp out the movement that identified Jesus as the Jewish Messiah. So what is he saying about the crucifixion of Christ and his impact upon believers? Well, what we see here, simply put, is Paul is saying that the crucifixion of Christ, this very real, very observable, very physical event in space and time, has far-reaching, perpetual, continuous, ongoing impact spiritually for him and by extension for all of us. 
So Paul goes on to explain that he has been crucified with Christ, but he goes on to explain that he no longer lives, but now Christ lives within him. And let me first say that at a very high level, right, we see the completion of Paul's view of the crucifixion of Christ. Not only is the crucifixion a real event in space and time, but so is the resurrection, as indicated by the fact that Paul says Christ lives in him. And we know that Paul isn't talking about the memory of Christ lives on in him. He's not talking about the influence of Christ living on in him. <clears throat> the, 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 but, but, but Paul has a real eye toward a resurrected bodily Jesus being alive and well sitting at the right hand of the Father, interceding on our behalf, and that Jesus, him actively and spiritually alive and living in Paul's heart. And how do we know that? Well, I'm not just asserting this, but in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul lists out everyone that Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, appeared to. He goes through the disciples. He goes through some folks that he saw, about 40 other folks. And he talks and he talks and he talks. And then at the very end, he says, oh, yeah, and he also appeared to me. Now, back to the verse. Dealing with the very first part of the verse, Paul says that he no longer lives. <clears throat> that in the same way that the physical crucifixion of Christ brought about Christ's physical death, Paul informs us that his spiritual crucifixion also ended in death because he no longer lives. But clearly, Paul is alive while he is writing this letter to the Galatians. So the question becomes, what is it that died, Paul? What is no longer alive in you, Paul? And I believe that Paul is saying that the spiritual crucifixion put to death his old life. (laughs) His old way of thinking, his old way of believing, his old way of behaving. And for Paul, specifically from the context of the letter and the overall content of all of his letters, he makes it clear that his old way of thinking, his old way of living involved pursuing righteousness through the law, trying to justify himself, trying to make himself right with God by means of his adherence to guidelines, to rituals, and to traditions. Paul knew that all men were being held captive by the law, meaning that everyone had been born under the curse of the law. I know we like to say that a man is basically good, right? But Paul lets us know that the law established a standard hmm, to live by that makes us all conscious of sin. It makes us aware that the desires of our hearts don't align with God's heart. But when we try and live according to that law, according to God's standard, we find out, guess what, Pete, that we can't do it. Well, at least we can't do it every day, every situation, and with everybody. If you let me pick and choose, I look pretty good. (sighs) But if you just let the camera roll, (sighs) there's going to be a lot of outtakes and edits that need to be made. 
But please don't misunderstand the point I think Paul is trying to make here. He's not saying that obeying God's commands isn't necessary. He's not saying that because of Christ's death on the cross, God's law goes out the window and believers can just do whatever they want to. But no, instead, what he is saying is, is that he had, get this now, a wrong way of thinking about his life. He had a wrong way of thinking about God, and he ultimately, that gave him a wrong way of thinking about the connection between both of them. Paul's old way of thinking and what he is warning the Galatians against has to do with his reliance upon his ability to justify himself. His ability to earn God's approval on his own, through the law, according to his own efforts, Paul declares that when he accepted Christ as his savior, the part of him that was under the curse of the law died on the cross with Christ. Now, you may be sitting there saying to yourself, well, I don't think like that, Elder Wright. I I, I don't believe that my good deeds will save me. I I know I can't earn my way into heaven, but... Think about it again and don't get lost on the specific example of Paul. Instead, let's try to look beyond and and examine what lies at the core of this kind of thinking, of trying to justify ourselves by our deeds. At first, it may seem noble, right? It may even seem necessary, but something else is going on here. and, And they are actually two sides of the same coin at first, right? When I think that I can be right with God or on my own or even worse, when I think I don't need to be right with God, there's a minimizing or a dismissing of Christ and the work that he did on the cross. The other side of the coin, when I define and pursue righteousness on my own terms, according to my own standards of what I think is right and what I think is wrong, then there is an elevating of self. (laughs) a declaration through our actions that we know better than God. And while we might not be guilty of the specific charge of trying to justify ourselves through strict adherence to the law, we are all guilty of minimizing Christ and elevating ourselves. Additionally, when we are truly crucified with Christ, I no longer lives. I no longer sit on the throne of my life. I no longer am the utmost authority of my life. I no longer am focused on fulfilling my desires. I no longer put more value in what I think than what God has said. I no longer look out solely for my own interests. I no longer am trying to define myself according to the world. But instead, Christ has, or at least he should have, (laughs) have full, complete control of every aspect of our lives. In other words, Christ is living in us. Christ is living through us. He's directing us. He's guiding us. He's moving us. And that only makes sense, Pastor, because he, after all, he, he, he paid for us. He he bought us. (laughs) Look, I got a car sitting out in that parking lot. I'm making payments on it. It ain't even mine, but I'm going to treat it a certain kind of way. Pete, don't lean on, don't get too close to it, Doc. 
That's my car. And guess what? That car ain't going to go till I go. It's not going to go anywhere unless I want it to go somewhere. Because I'm paying for it. I'm believing I'll have it paid one day. <laughs> Come on, y'all. We got to keep going here. So, so the focus, right, isn't on us trying to follow every commandment. Right? It isn't on us trying to observe every tradition and every ritual. Instead, the focus should be on us allowing Christ to have, this is going to mess with you, access to every, access to every, access to every part of your life. I'm going to do something here that's going to seem amazing. I think I have a prophetic gift that when I said that, instantly in your mind jumped an area of your life. that Christ does not have access to. Now, you can sit there and act brand new with me like, I don't know. I, th- I don't know that there's anything that don't know. You knew. Uh, right? You might have you thought of three when I said every. Every. He was like, oh, Lord, stop. Every. But let me, let me help you out. We all have areas of our lives that we are keeping Christ at bay. Christ, I really need you over here. This is where I need you to be Lord and Savior of my life, but I can handle this. I got it figured out. Or I don't want you to see what I'm doing over here. What what is that? I don't want you. (laughs) I don't want you to see. No, just busy yourself over there, Jesus. I got this. Right? But Christ living through us, living in us, through us, guiding us, moving us, means that he has access to every part of our lives. Further, this crucifying of the I is not a one and done kind of a thing. I wish that it were, but it is an everyday kind of thing. Actually, it is a multiple times a day kind of thing. But why is that? And this is where we've got to be honest with ourselves. And this might not feel good. It didn't feel good when I was, the Lord was sharing it with me. And I was like, Lord, I don't know if I want to say that because that hits me. Hmm. But it isn't because the cross isn't powerful enough. It isn't because Christ's death wasn't complete and thorough enough. But it is literally because a new nature is being born and created in us. One that up until the moment that we accepted Christ hadn't been alive at all. And then after accepting Christ, listen at this. Christ comes into your life. He sparks life into that dead part of us that could not respond. And then for most of us, It's poorly nourished after that. I'm a numbers guy, so here's some more numbers. There are seven days in a week, 24 hours in a day, 168 hours per week. Just think about the time that we all spend working, sleeping, eating, watching TV or some type of leisure, 
and then compare that to how much time we spend praying, studying the word. I won't count church attendance because hmm, some of you are asleep right now, so we won't even count that. But studies show that on average, Americans spend less than 3.5 hours or 2.5% on, listen at this, it's a category on civic slash religious activities. So that means the religious part is even less. So it is no wonder that we have to crucify ourselves daily. It is no wonder that we keep struggling with the same sins. It is no wonder that the world is not impressed by the witness of the church. It is no wonder that the name of the Lord is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of us. I know that doesn't feel good. <clears throat> but like Paul, I'm not trying to impress men. And this is going to sound a bit counterintuitive because, Elder Wright, you just told me I don't spend enough time doing those things, so I'm going to go home and develop a plan so that I spend more time. It is not a call for you to do that. Hear me, hear me, hear me. It's not a, plan, it's not a call for you to go home and, and map out how you're going to read more of the Bible. It's not a call for you to go home and map out how you're going to pray more. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. This is a call for you and for me and everyone to cry out to the Lord, crucify me daily, God. Make me desire you. Make me delight in your word. Make your presence to me more precious and more satisfying than any other thing I could be spending my time doing. Make me desire to fill my mind with your precepts, to bathe my thoughts with your promises, to fill my heart and my mouth with your praises. Lastly, Paul indicates that the death that he has experienced as a result of being crucified with Christ has resulted in a shift. <laughs> when he explains that the life he now lives in the body, he lives by faith in the Son of God who loved and sacrificed himself. The fact, get this now, the fact that Paul makes a distinction that his life now, after being crucified with Christ, is lived by faith, implies that before Christ, his life was lived by something else. <laughs> well, we don't have to think too hard about this since Paul reveals it, and we've been discussing it already, that he was living his life according to the works of the law. Paul had organized and he had structured his life, his activities, his interactions, his endeavors around proving to God, or at least trying to prove to God, that he was righteous, that he was worthy to go to heaven, and that, uh, that he was uh, uh, justified and in right standing with God. And to push it even further, to show just how serious about this that he was, he even took it upon himself to go after folks <laughs> who weren't getting it in like him. <laughs> Boy, there's a message in there somewhere. You look, <clears throat> which is why he was persecuting the early church. But <laughs> when he met the risen Jesus on the road to Damascus, everything 
changed for Paul. As Christ opened the eyes of his heart to see that what he was trying to accomplish could only be achieved through faith, and that this faith, it wasn't some warm and fuzzy feeling, it's not, it's not a, a positive, false kind of a thing. It's not wake up and say 10 times, I, I, people like me and I'm like, no, no, it's not all that kind of stuff. It is not a blind, generic faith. Let me keep pushing at this. It's also, it's also not, let me consult, what does my horoscope say today? Christians, we got to do better. How am I going to just last Sunday say my Savior got up with all power and authority in his hands, but then be looking at the stars talking about what kind of day am I going to have today? Talking about well, when was your birthday? My birthday is, oh, we should get along. What is that? For a Christian, what is that? Carrying around crystals. If Christ's work on the cross was complete, what you need some rocks in your pocket. Those rocks, Christ said, will cry out. If we don't praise him, This faith, this belief is not generic. It's not warm and fuzzies, but it is a specific faith. It is a specific belief, a specific trust in Jesus as the Christ. Not as a good teacher, not as a good example, not as somebody that had some good ideas, not somebody that we all should try to emulate, but as the Christ, the Son of God. This belief and trust in him is not just because of who he is, but it's also because of what he has done. Jesus has proven himself. He proved on the cross that he loved us. And in his resurrection, he proved that he had authority over death and sin. He proved that we should worship him. We should submit to him as Lord. Pastor told us last Sunday that he had a conversation with a guy. He said, show me somebody that has done what Jesus has done. And I worship that one. But until then, hey, as for me and my house, <laughs> we're going to worship the Lord. Church family, friends, can I ask you, what or who are you living your life according to? What or who has such a grip on you that it determines how you organize and structure your life? What or who has you so bound up that your interactions, your endeavors, the way you talk, the way you dress, the way you act, how you think is all in an effort to prove that you're worthy of the approval of some person, some movement, or some trend? At the end of the day, we're all worshiping something. At the end of the day, we're all being conformed into the image of something or someone. At the end of the day, we're all devoting our time, our talent, and our treasure to something or to someone. The question is, can that something or someone bridge the divide between you and God? 
Oh, I understand it might make you forget about your problems for a little while, but can it give you peace that surpasses all understanding? It might even get you retweeted and reposted, but can it redeem you and renew you? It might get you that promotion, that job or that raise, but can it store up treasure in heaven where no thief, no rust or no moth can even get to it? It might get you a lot of likes on Instagram, but can it get you a well done, good and faithful servant? It might get someone to swipe right on your image, but can it give you love unconditional? It might even get you to the top of the corporate ladder, but can it mount you up on wings like eagles? Hey! Huh. Talking about Jesus if you hadn't figured it out. Don't leave nothing, no stone unturned. You leave out here and say, who was he talking about? I want to try that. In conclusion, I'll get you guys out of here. Too often, we get lost in the tradition. Too often, we get lost in the ritual of these high holy days. We come out because we're supposed to. We sing the songs because we're supposed to. We listen to the theme, the message, because we're supposed to. We celebrate that his death and resurrection gets us into heaven because we're supposed to. But when the service is done, when our nice clothes are hung back up in the closet, when the meal has been eaten and the dishes have been put back in the cabinet, when family has left and gone back home, we do the same thing to Christ by putting him back in the tomb. Until next year, Jesus, you make sure you come out just like you did last year. I'll see you next Easter, next Resurrection Sunday. And look, I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with what millions of Christians did in celebration of the resurrection last Sunday. There's nothing wrong with that. <clears throat> but is that it? What will we do with the other 364 days of the year? Is that all the crucifixion calls us to? And I assert it is not. The crucifixion calls us to be crucified with Christ, to put to death our old selves, our old way of thinking, our old way of believing, our old way of behaving. The crucifixion calls us to be controlled by Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The crucifixion calls us to have confidence in Christ that he is the son of God and that he is able more than anything or anyone else to give us life more abundantly. Amen. Amen. And amen. Hmm. Look, church family, the beauty of, of the crucifixion is that it is a real historical event that has ongoing, lasting ramifications, even to today. 2,000 years later, there is still power in the blood. 2,000 years later, Jesus is still able to save to the utmost. 2,000 years later, there is still plenty of good room at the cross. The question is, <laughs> what will you do with it? This is an invitation for those that are listening at home. If you do not know Christ, 
For those that are here, if you do not know Christ, I don't mean you don't know stories about him. I don't mean you, you know the, the, some facts and some history about him and you know he died. At, no, no. I'm talking about do you know him in the pardoning of your sins? Have you accepted that his death on the cross wasn't just a tragedy and a shame, but it was a sacrifice in your place for a debt that we owed? If you want to know more about that Jesus, if you're watching at home, there'll be some information at the end of the program where you can call the church, you can email, someone would be more than happy to follow up with you. If you are here right now, you can get with me, you can get with pastor, you can get with one of the elders, the deacons, and we will have that conversation with you so that you leave here knowing that you know that you know Jesus Christ crucified. Amen? Amen. Amen. Amen.